0: This is here at now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton, and every month we. Uh Set aside some time on Here It Now to assemble a group of editors to talk about what's been going on in the news. And uh, an awful lot has been going on in the news just this past week. So, our editors' group today is, of course, Dave Thompson, Prairie Public News Director. He joins us from our Bismarck studio. Good afternoon, Dave. Good afternoon, Doug. And uh, Jerry Crumb, editor of the New Town News and Montreal County Record, joins us uh, by phone. Good afternoon.
1: Good afternoon.
0: And uh, from our Grand Forks studio, Mary Jo Hotzler, Director of Forum News Service. Good afternoon, Mary Jo. Good afternoon. And uh, I'm going to start with you, Mary Jo, because you've made a bit of news. Uh, starting <laughs> on the 1st of February, you got this new job. Tell us about it.
2: Yeah, well, I am still here in Grand Forks as the editor at the Grand Forks Herald, but I am also directing the Forum News Service. And what that is, I, I will be moving to Fargo soon, actually. That's where the home base of this will be. But it's essentially all of the Forum Communications properties throughout North Dakota, Minnesota, as well as South Dakota and Wisconsin are really coming together now to... Uh, we're sharing our content and we are, are putting together an actual... News product that we will be outselling to other news organizations um, in the coming weeks, months, and years, and so I will be in charge of that. And it's it's a really exciting opportunity. We're we're basically starting a new uh, new business from the ground up. And well, so,
0: congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> okay, Dave, uh, bring us up to date on what has happened with property taxes this week.
3: Well, both the House and Senate have passed property tax reform bills. The House is a little bit more generous than the Senate, but of course everything's going to go into Conference Committee when they get to that point as the bills cross over to the other House. The Senate's version, or I should say the House version of the property tax bill, which has passed, uh, some of the property tax relief is going to be direct property tax relief or direct mill levy buy-down, and some of it's going to be done through upping the state share of funding K through 12 education. So it's a kind of a two-pronged approach on how they're going to do it. And when the discussion happened on the House floor, the leadership said this is a way to sustain it because sustainability has been one of the key words for House Republicans during the session. They, the House Republicans believe that this is the way to sustain this into the future. Uh, well, what's the bottom line for us property taxpayers? I believe the last bottom line I saw was $1.2 billion in property tax. And what you will see, according to the House sources and according to their bill, you will see a 35% reduction in your property tax bill. That is
0: a hefty reduction. It is. And uh, there's already been a reduction, so that's on top of that. Uh, Jerry, we spoke earlier this afternoon, and uh, you talked about a, a kind of a tax windfall and a kind of a tax penalty, if you will, uh, that uh, is affecting the Newtown School. Can you uh, fill us in on that?
1: Well, the um, 60 years ago when the Garrison Dam was completed um, and the uh, Lake Sakakawea filled up, the Newtown School District was one of the biggest losers as far as, the amount of property that was supporting the school. And um, when the, uh, I believe it was the state or federal government, got the mineral rights under that land, the law says that the uh, any income from those rights will go to the local governments, which in this case is Montreal County and the uh, uh, Newtown School District. And, well, of course, everybody knows uh, what's happened in the last five years with mineral development in, in this area, and that includes under the lake. And so uh, just from the lease sales under the lake, uh, the uh, Newtown School District got something like $6 million uh, of income. And they've used that to build a new school. They've put in geothermal heating in the uh, New School and in the uh, elementary school here um, and there 's always been a concern that the legislature will look at that money and say the Newtown school district doesn 't need any more money because they've, they've got what is being called flood money um, and so the um, in this property tax bill that uh, Dave was talking about. Uh, Basically, they're requiring the school district to take this flood money and uh, look at it as it was property tax money, the local share of, for operating the school. And by doing that, that will cut the state's commitment to the Newtown School District by something like $2 million.
0: And uh, what uh, the folks at Newtown School think about that?
1: Um. Well, it was uh, better than some of the other proposals that had been going around, uh, uh, which would have might have cost the school district even more. Uh, but that still, it is uh, uh, means that the school district will be getting less per pupil from the state than other schools in the state. So,
3: if I could jump in here, there there was a lot of talk about that. When the bill was debated on the House floor and there was a pledge by some in both parties to see if they can work that out when it gets to the Senate.
0: Okay. well, another thing that happened this week that does affect uh, Newtown and for that matter, all of the oil patch was an overwhelming vote in favor of sending more oil tax revenue to the impacted areas in the oil patch. So uh, maybe that helps mitigate some things as well.
3: It might. I think that some of that money will be for schools as well. Uh, It's an interesting concept, and it's it's kind of hard for me to get my my hand around it and my head around it just yet. But in the proposal, they talked about two hub cities being Williston and, I think, Minot. Yes. And talked about how they would get some automatic money. They wouldn't have to go compete for some of the grant money. The rest of the cities would have to go compete for the grant money. But there's a lot of money to compete for. Balance that, though, there are a lot of needs, whether it be schools, roads, infrastructure, streets, housing, uh, even police, of sewer and water. There are a lot, of, a lot of needs out there because of the oil influx, the influx of oil workers. And, of course, the, the trucks that are really you know doing a number on the roads. So there seems to be an effort to get more money into that area to keep more of the oil production and extraction tax money in the area where the oil is taken from.
0: This was House Bill 1358, and uh, Majority Leader Al Carlson said that if it were enacted in its current form, this is from the Bismarck Tribune, a story by Nick Smith, the state share of the gross production tax would drop from approximately $1.1 billion to around $651 million. So that's a, that's a big chunk. It is. Uh, Jerry, uh, we were talking earlier about new towns, roads, and highways, and they've got a bypass that's in the works. Bring us up to date on that.
1: Yeah, they've been working on that for, oh, well over a year and a half, I think. And um, it's finally gotten to the point where... Um, the state has completed its uh, environmental assessment, and that means we can have a public hearing on it, which is scheduled for uh, uh, March 19th. And after that, they can finally start uh, advertising for bids, Uh, and uh, we're looking at uh, being able to take something like uh, uh, more than 1,000 trucks a day off the the main street of Newtown
0: that'll make a difference
1: <laughs> oh. yeah it'll cut it in about in half okay. and uh, and actually they've been uh planning on uh replacing main street uh they were planning to do that last summer but there was just so much
0: oh uh, something something's happened with Jerry's signal but we'll move on to uh but Mary I, Joe Hotzler it's
3: interesting if you if if you could hear what he said if you take a 1,000 trucks off Main Street and that's about half the traffic, Yeah, that tells you for <laughs> a, a, city, a city that, that was only a couple thousand people a few years ago, that's a lot of traffic. All right. Well, I'm
0: going to move to Mary Jo because another big story this week uh, in, uh, was accompanied by a letter in every newspaper of, of size in the state from Duane Espigard, the president of the State Board of Higher Education, and it was headlined, Drama Has Been Hurting Higher Ed. Mary Jo, uh, there's been an awful lot of drama surrounding the chancellor, and for that matter, the State Board of Higher Education. Uh, What have you guys been reporting?
2: (laughs) Well, uh, it seems like it's been something every day, hasn't it been? Yes. (laughs) And this has been going on for for a few weeks. Um, You know, it's it's sort of been a back and forth all week long. Uh, It seems like one day this week, there's a story uh, talking about the plans uh, for the amendment to potentially buy out uh, Chancellor Schiavone's contract. The next day, it's uh, the board coming forward uh, reiterating that they, they support Schiavone and he is doing what what has been asked of him, um, followed by uh, a story in the other direction. And it seems like it's just been a lot of back and forth. Um, there's There's definitely two different camps of people here. Uh, whether they support Shirvani or whether they don't uh, and then now what we're hearing and what we've been reporting is this this effort that's coming forward and uh, to to really look at whether or not our system for higher education is is effective and this has been a conversation uh, we the state has had before it was brought forward um, during the last session I, I believe by al Carlson and and didn't go anywhere Shirvani is new to the position uh, but Perhaps uh, putting a new person in that position was not the be-all, end-all. And so here we are having this conversation again, and and it's just been all over the map.
0: Well, there does seem to be uh, some very serious issues involving the relationships between the leaders of some universities, the chancellor's office, the higher ed board, uh, the legislature. It seems like a terrible knot right now, and uh, who's going to untangle it?
2: That, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, I guess here it is before before legislators, and I think there's some there's some hope that that they can begin to untangle this. But I I'm not so sure it's that simple um, because there's so many affected parties here and so many people who um, ultimately at the end of the day all want the same thing. I think, and that's a strong higher education system and uh, a system that it produces results and good workers for the state, but you know, everybody has a different idea of how to get there. And I guess the first step will be um, what uh, what lawmakers decide to, how they decide to intervene. And if they decide to ultimately intervene, that will be the, the first step. But certainly it's going to take a greater effort than just that to, to really make changes and to get us to a place where, um, you know, maybe not everybody's happy, but <laughs> certainly more people are happy than Than they are today.
0: Well, there are two uh, resolutions, one Senate, one House, that caught my eye today. Uh, Senator Joe Miller of Park River would eliminate the State Board of Higher Education in his Senate resolution, Mm -hmm. 4028. Uh, And that Higher Education Board has been in place since 1938. Uh, He would favor something called the Council of Regents, Mm -hmm. which would appoint a chancellor. Then uh, there's House Concurrent Resolution thirty forty two, uh, introduced by Representative Rick Becker of Bismarck, his constitutional amendment would get rid of the board and create the elected office of higher education commissioner. So it seems like uh, there are all these ideas, but uh, not a lot of consensus.
2: No, definitely not consensus. And I think there's, you know, going to have to be a period here of of ideas uh, being brought forward. And you know, at, at this point, you know, we'll just we will keep reporting on on what those are but i think you know there will have to be enough ideas brought forward um to really get people thinking about this uh, to be able to start to uh, point us in in some sort of direction but again you know it's it's uh, sort of frustrating to sit back and watch because you know this conversation has been going on for for really a number of years and and here we are and it's it's almost like a broken record at this point that uh you know here we are again having this this conversation, and we have these same dilemmas. So, I, I don't know how you build, build consensus when when everybody is so divided.
0: All right. Well, we'll have more of our editors' roundtable with Mary Jo Hotzler, director of Forum News Service; Dave Thompson, Prairie Public News director; and Jerry Crum, editor of the Newtown News and Montreal County Record, in just a moment.
4: a night of jazz on Prairie Public. Following the rebroadcast of Hear It Now, we kick it off with Friday Night Swing with Lloyd Anderson. Then at 9 Central, it's Riverwalk Jazz. And at 10, Bob Studebaker hosts as we present both classic jazz from the legends of American music and new jazz from emerging artists. Then at 11, it's the Jazz Junket with Ryan Schweitzer, followed at midnight by Jim Wilkie's Jazz After Hours. That's all right here, statewide, on Prairie Public. When you hear arts programming here on Prairie Public, know that it is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, and we thank them.
0: This is here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton. In the background, Senor Kroon was playing. <laughs> That's a CD uh, which features Stephen Kroon as the producer and uh, also one of the players, Senor Kroon. Okay, we are back to our Editor's Roundtable with Dave Thompson, Mary Jo Hotzler, and Jerry Crum. And uh, I'm going to change subjects now to something that is uh, pretty intensely important on the eastern side of the state, and that's flood protection from the Red River. Uh, There was a flurry of controversy when uh, the House Majority Leader, Al Carlson, a resident of Fargo, introduced a bill which subsequently passed uh, in the House that would uh, limit how the state's contribution to flood control can be spent in the Red River.
3: Uh, Dave, can you bring us up to date with what happened there? The measure, which was in, introduced as an amendment to the Water Commission budget, said we'll go ahead and finish the diking project in the city of Fargo to 42.5 feet protection for the Red. But the language says no money will be spent on buyouts or on ring dikes in the area south of Fargo, upstream on the Red River, until the federal government makes a firm commitment that they're going to fund their share of a diversion project, the explanation was a the federal government 's broke it does not have the money and may not may not be willing to fund this at this time b there's no real final plan for the diversion project this is this is the argument that 's being made mm-hmm. and there and until there is a final plan, why move ahead with some of these things? So there's a lot of things going. It was interesting when the carrier of the bill, which was Representative Bob Scarple from Tioga, spoke on the floor. He said, the way it is now, 92% of the people in the valley would be protected from flood, but we're concerned about what happens to the 8%. So there's still that issue that's out there, too. It's It's, it's a very complicated issue. But again, we're just talking about... And I almost hate to use the analogy, but, but people are going to be booing at the radio right now. I say the legislature is only putting its toe in the water right now.
0: Okay. Well, I was trying to read between the lines a little bit because, uh, uh, again, Al Carlson sent a letter to all the papers, and it was all published. And I've got a copy here that was published in the forum. And he says, I believe that federal funding for this project is a long shot. But I'm also wondering— if he isn't concerned that uh, the state's congressional delegation
3: has almost no seniority anymore? Could be. If you think about it, you have the delegation saying we will fight for this project, we'll fight for federal funding. You had commitments, at least verbal commitments, to the last congressional delegation that there would be funding for the project. But again, things do change. You're talking sequestration, you're talking budget battles, you've got a Potential uh, another roadblock coming up at the the end of March, and Carlson saying that the federal government doesn 't have the money right now to to make good on any commitment it made, and there's no real in writing commitment as far as I know Mary Jo, so have you
0: heard anything uh, different than what we 've been talking about
2: no i mean that is that is pretty much what i've what i've heard too and and from what we reported this last week, you know uh, Carlson. As we've said is arguing that he's trying to protect the Cass county taxpayers from a from a heavy heavy burden and interestingly, there are a few other Fargo lawmakers who are are backing him on this but but certainly there's the other side that feels like the state needs to show that support or the federal government will be even less likely to to Fund any such projects,
0: yeah, it does seem interesting. Uh, usually, the argument is the state ponies up so the federal government will come in, and, and now L Carlson is basically saying, "Well, the federal government needs to pony up and, and uh, but obviously, the country does have some fiscal issues. When I spoke with Kathy Hawken earlier this week, a Republican from Fargo, House member, she was very angry with the majority leader. And obviously, the mayor of Fargo, Dennis Wallacher, has been a little upset with uh, the majority leader. So uh, there does seem to be some political smoothing over that needs to be done uh, here as well.
2: Yes. You know, Kathy Hawken, I think she was quoted in one of our articles as, really referring to it as as micromanaging and, and kind of feeling like Fargo been, is being singled out in this and that uh, no other districts have had to uh, have been singled out in this way where or, or their projects put in jeopardy.
3: Well, Dave, uh, we I, could say it's also a very interesting. Now you have the business community taking notice in Fargo, and there's a coalition that's been formed to fight for this. There are there was somebody who appeared on one of the talk programs that i happened to catch a, to catch a little bit of who said well the opposition to what carlson's doing is only coming from the from the cass county commission well as you heard it's not true because no. the mayor is who has been working on this flood control protection project for a long time is pretty upset a lot of the members of the fargo city Commission are upset you've got the business community that's upset so this is going to be an interesting fight as we get into the second half of the session.
0: Well, it'll be very interesting to see how this gets resolved because there are, uh, there are some very upset people uh, <laughs> within the party and, and outside it as well. Uh, the failure of the legislature to cut sales taxes. Uh, Dave, uh, what, what went on?
3: There? Uh, Senator Sinner from, Grand For- from Fargo had a couple of proposals. One, the first one he introduced was to end the sales tax on clothing, saying that Minnesota does not have a sales tax on clothing. Montana does not have a sales tax on clothing. And that's one way you level a playing field. And now Minnesota is talking about adding sales tax to clothing purchases over $100. And his second argument was, if Minnesota does that, we're at a competitive advantage to Minnesota. That didn't fly. The other one would reduce the rate of sales tax from the 5% statewide to 4%. That didn't go very far either. The majority is saying our plan is to get property taxes, income taxes, and corporate taxes down.
0: So sales taxes may not happen this this session. Probably won't. Well, I think uh, that probably encourages some folks on the eastern border of North Dakota because uh, the folks on the border cities in Minnesota have been very concerned about this discussion in the North Dakota legislature. Uh, the Spirit Lake meeting, we'll just start this discussion and then we'll probably have to carry it on after the news. But uh, Mary Jo, what happened at that meeting?
2: Well, uh, so, so this meeting, it was, it was a meeting that at Spirit Lake and it was open, open to the public. That was a really big deal uh, because there was some uh, question over that, whether that would be the case. Uh, but essentially uh, a number of of people who are concerned about spirit lake came together um and and had an opportunity to stand face to face uh with um tribal leaders with um government officials to really uh try to talk about the issues on spirit lake the issues of course being the issues of child child welfare child endangerment and so many of the 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 things that have been brought up over the last year and uh from what we can tell it was a i mean it was a it was a good meeting it was uh a meeting that i believe you know was intended to be around an hour or so and went 3 hours because there were a lot of people who were uh very passionate about uh what they what they wanted the government to know and what they wanted uh others to know so uh from everything i can can tell it was it was a it was a good step forward but uh, as this issue goes um you know, it's hard to know where the, again, where the resolution comes into play.
0: Well, that's Mary Jo Hotzler, Director of Forum News Service. We are also speaking with Dave Thompson, Prairie Public News Director, and Jerry Crum, Editor of the Newtown News and Montreal County Record. It's Editor's Roundtable, and we'll have more of it after the news. This is here at now on Pray Public. I'm Doug Hamilton, and we'll continue our editor's roundtable with Dave Thompson, Mary Jo Hotzler, and Jerry Crum. Uh, when we left the discussion, we were at Spirit Lake, where they had a sort of a public meeting that involved uh, the tribal leaders, uh, federal officials, including uh, uh, federal attorney or U.S. attorney Timothy Purdon, and uh, lots of uh, interested people who wanted to share their opinions about what was going on up there. I had to refresh a little bit of my history about this, Dave. The BIA took over the, I guess, that that kind of child uh, safety area at the reservation on the 1st of October. And there are 19 social workers from across the country that have been sent to Spirit Lake to provide temporary help. But there must be a a
3: very deeply ingrained uh, uh, pervasive problem there. There seems to be, and what we're hearing now is the BIA is now claiming and saying that they're seeing improvements. They're seeing some of this this problem start to go away as the uh, social workers who have come to the reservation have helped kind of turn things around. But that was the point of that that whole point, as, as Mary Jo said, of that entire meeting that was held at Spirit Lake at the casino on Wednesday. Is to, to let people, you know, talk about their concerns out in the open. And I thought, thought it was very interesting because we went back and forth about whether or not it was going to be an open meeting. Yes. I understand that BIA and some of the tribal leaders at first wanted it to be a closed meeting, but the congressional delegation intervened and wanted it to open, and eventually they decided it was going to be open.
0: Now, uh, John Hoven was—I thought he was going to be at the meeting, but he wasn't there. He was not there. Uh— Roger Yankton, the uh, tribal chair, uh, has been taking a bit of heat for this, uh, I mean, this issue.
3: Yes. Yes, he has taken a bit of the heat for this issue. But as he points out, this goes far back from when I've been chairman. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, it's, been, it's been a while since this problem has been on the reservation. And everybody concedes that although progress is being made, it's going to be a while before the, the, the problems are completely righted. Well, there are
0: a couple of more meetings coming up. Uh, There's a uh, Child and Welfare Fair at Spirit Lake on March 12th, a program on child abuse awareness March 14th, and a program on sexual assault prevention and education on April 16th and 17th. So uh, lots more to deal with up there, I guess. Uh, Let's change subjects here to something else, and uh, this caught my eye. School boards cannot decide secretly to allow guns on campus. There was a House bill to allow concealed weapons to be carried in schools, and it was approved by the House of Representatives last week. Uh, But we have uh, a uh, communication uh, that suggests that that would be illegal, because a school board cannot secretly decide to allow guns on campus.
3: I think it's very interesting how that bill is is starting to evolve. And the argument made by the North Dakota Newspaper Association, the North Dakota Broadcasters Association, is that the school board cannot hold these meetings in secret. That was a that was a big argument, and the argument on the floor was yes, it should be secret because we don't want any potential gunman to know who's actually packing heat yeah. in schools. But this issue is far from resolved. There are a lot of things that may go on when that bill gets over to the Senate, and they're starting to. Uh, uh, we're seeing a little bit of it, and we're hearing a little bit about uh, some more organized opposition to that bill that is, that is evolving, apparently, the North Dakota Education Association, the Council of School Leaders, North Dakota School Boards Association don't like the bill.
0: Well, I've heard some superintendents speak out against it because uh, they don't like the idea of guns in school.
3: And there are police chiefs who are, who are questioning it, too.
0: Okay. Well, uh, Jerry has joined us again. He, we got cut off uh, temporarily. Jerry, I'm glad to have you back with us. Thank you. Jerry Crum, editor of the Newtown News and Montreal County Record. Uh, this is sort of a, a, an oil patch story here. I, uh, Amy Dalrymple for the forum uh, posted this today. Williston receives a lower bond rating. Who would have thought that? Uh, Standard & Poor's rating services has reduced Williston's refunding improvement bonds from A- to triple B plus, And they call their outlook negative. Uh, the city's a mushrooming growth, apparently. Uh, They've been unable to keep ahead of it, and uh, they're actually in debt.
1: Yeah, um, I can see that because all of the communities in this part of the state have been under such heavy um, uh, demand for services and infrastructure that they're, It's been really hard for them to keep up in Newtown. Its water treatment plant is only 10 years old, but they are considering whether or not uh, they may need another one before uh, too many more years. So basically doubling the size of their uh, uh, water treatment plant, uh, partial, is looking at building a new sewage lagoon. So the demands out here are just intense.
0: Well, uh, the Williston City Auditor, John Kautzman, said Williston had about $46 million in debt at the start of the year, and he anticipates additional borrowing. In meantime, Williston has identified about $625 million in infrastructure needs. But, of course, not everything needs to be done at once, but still, that's a, that's a huge number. So, yeah. obviously, this oil impact money... That the legislature has been talking about is critically important to those people,
1: and not just to the Williston or, or Minot, but even the smaller towns around. Um, sure, uh, partial just had a ten million dollar bond sale, and uh, that's a town of eight hundred right now. Wow, but it's looking at maybe uh, you know doubling or tripling in size in the next ten years.
0: That is amazing, Jerry. <laughs> that that's a. Significant number for 800 people. Uh, we'll change subjects again. We'll talk about Medicaid expansion because this was uh, one of those almost uh, – well, it was an election year issue, uh, among other things. Uh, it sort of broke down along ideological lines, and it appears that uh, those lines have started to move a bit. Uh, Dave?
3: Yeah, let's go back to you know, where this comes from was the Affordable Care Act, which was dubbed Obamacare. And there are not a lot of Republicans who like it. You, you, might, you might expect that. But it was interesting when this bill came to the floor. Ironically, we've been talking a lot about Representative Carlson, the majority leader. He introduced the bill, and he testified against the bill because he wanted the discussion to go. That's why he put the name on the bill. But he, didn't, he doesn't like the concept. Again, he thinks, okay, the federal government's broke, and this idea that they're going to pay 100% of it. Well, that's just a, you know a canard. So it went to the it went to the floor and Representative Robin Weiss of Herdsfield, he's the chairman of House Human Services, I think gave a wonderful explanation about you know, his feelings about why the state should be doing this. Because businesses will be taxed, there are a lot of taxes that are that are associated with the Affordable Care Act. And if North Dakota does not take advantage of this, well those tax dollars are going to go to fund New Jersey or New York or some other state that has embraced the idea of expanding Medicaid to cover the uninsured. In the end, that argument won the day. And it was very interesting, at the end of that, Al Carlson stood up and explained why he introduced the bill, why he opposed it, but he said he understands why there is some appetite not to send tax that North Dakota pays to some other state. It will be extremely interesting. There seems to be uh, maybe even more support to do this in the Senate. Just talking with some of the Senate, Senate leaders after that vote, they all said, well, yeah, I think we could probably go along with this. So it could be interesting. North Dakota, which has not been in favor of the Affordable Care Act, may go ahead and expand Medicaid because they see that there is some benefit to keeping those taxes here? Well, there had
0: to be a lot of Republicans voting for it because the final vote in the House was 57 to 36.
3: And I don't remember it, but, you know, if you had every Democrat vote for it, then you only need so many of the Republicans. It could be that it was a very split caucus in the Republican Party, but enough Republicans voted to put that over the top.
0: Well, I'm looking from a a story that indicates that the state's Medicaid program now covers about 65,000 people a month. Mm -hmm. If, indeed, the Senate follows along and the governor signs a bill, this would expand eligibility to another 20,000 people, mostly adults without children. Right. So uh, we'll be following that pretty closely.
3: And we might as well mention that Governor Dalrymple did put this in the human services budget.
0: Yes, I remember that. Well... There was an awful lot of chat about restructuring the oil tax. <laughs> uh, Jerry and Dave, let's talk about this a bit. Uh, uh, Dwight Cook outlined the bill. Dave, what was in it?
3: Okay, it's it's more complicated than than you might see at face value, but he changes the rules and tightens the rules on such things known as stripper wells, the ones that are low-producing wells. If they are not producing so much over three months, well, then they don't have to pay the extraction tax. Well, he's tightening that rules because the stripper well definition has been, has been turned on its ear in the Vakken formation because, well, you have multiple oils driv- being drilled from one pad now. Yes. You might have one, one well that could qualify as a stripper well and one right next to it could be a gusher, for all you know. So he's tightening the rules on it and then says that these have to, be, uh, they have to be certified every three or four months that they are stripper wells. Also, he's decoupling uh, the price of oil from the taxes because there was a triggered mechanism that if the price of oil went so far under a triggered point for a three-month period, well, then taxes would be automatically lowered too. Now he's saying that we're doing this, and then for the oil industry, for new wells that are drilled after the year twenty eighteen after the year starts, or after three months consecutively when the state is producing one million barrels of oil or more, then the tax goes from a total of eleven and a half percent to nine and a half percent and that's the rub that's what's got uh, that that's what has some people who were who are making some question because. Remember, let's go back to 1980, and I, I don't mean to be pontificating on this, but, but it's an interesting story, interesting arguments. You go back to 1980, North Dakotans voted to put in measure number six, which increased the taxes on oil from 5% to 11.5%, and there are some who are saying that this is a slap in the face of what the, what the people of North Dakota wanted by, by lowering it from 11.5% to 9.5%. Cook's argument is we're not the only shale play out there. There's Marcellus Shale, there's a Texas play, there's a California play that may have a lot of oil, and if oil companies don't find that they're being treated the way they want to be treated, they'll pull the rigs and go somewhere else. So there is that uh that concern and i I always liken it to once bitten twice shy because we all we all went through the early nineteen eighties where everything was going great guns in nineteen eighty two The price of oil fell to about five bucks a barrel. the rigs left and cities were holding the bag. Well, is it
0: it the price of oil per barrel, or is it the tax that uh, uh, motivates the decision not to pump anymore?
3: Well, oil companies will tell you it's more the price per barrel. But if, if the price is starting to go down a little bit, well, they may look at saying, oh, well, we may want to go somewhere else. And the state wants to keep as many of the rigs here as possible.
0: Uh, I need a basic definition here. Why is there a distinction between a regular producing well and a stripper well? I mean, it's, it's still oil coming out of the ground, isn't
3: it? It is oil coming out of the ground, but really a stripper well doesn't produce very much. You're talking about if they say, if I remember correctly, and I think Jerry could correct me if I'm wrong, that in Bakken wells, there is a lot of production in the first like eighteen months, and then the production starts dropping, and then it's it's at a point where it's like I I don't remember if it was thirty barrels a day, or twenty five. And but it might be ten barrels a day. Uh ah, well, that's. that that if it goes to ten barrels a day or less, but still is producing oil, they want to keep that oil coming out of the ground, so they cut taxes on it. Well.
0: Okay, that that makes sense, I guess, uh, but these these terms get thrown around and we sometimes don't quite follow them. I noticed that uh, Connie Triplett from Grand Forks, Mary Joe, was uh, very opposed to this. She called it the biggest giveaway in the state's history, but it passed overwhelmingly. Yes. So, say lobby. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and
1: and I do have a a uh, my personal feeling is that, you know, when you're looking at uh, having something that is extremely valuable, that some, that these this industry really wants, and then you start charging less for it, that doesn't make good business sense to me.
0: Well, I think the observation has been that the state is filled with oil companies pumping oil right now, and... Uh, so where where is the incentive to reduce the tax? Right. <laughs> uh, I saw something uh, really intriguing in the Williston Herald uh, today, and it was a letter from uh, the chairman of the District One Democratic NPL, Bruce Anderson, and it was headlined "Our legislators represent all of us," and it's talking about the you know an on- the upcoming legislative forum that are that are typically done when legislators come home in a break. I know there's a break coming up. They're in one, I guess. Uh, And uh, this one was held at the Williston Community Library, but he says that now it's not only hosted by the Williston Area Chamber of Commerce, but by a local political party, as he puts it as well. Um, What's your take on that, Mary Jo? Uh,
2: I don't know. I may may have to pass on that. I'm not sure I've... um I'm not sure I have a have a take on that one quite yet.
0: Well, I, I'm assuming that all of those... I haven't
2: read that particular story yet sure. from Williston.
0: Well, it, it's, he says it, it, he thinks it's the first time this forum has become a partisan political event. And it, it, his word is the word partisan. He partisan, put that in yeah. There. Uh, but apparently it used to be uh, uh, hosted by the Williston Chamber of Commerce. Now it's the Williston Chamber of Commerce and the Republican Party. Hmm. Uh, so... Uh, interesting. I suspect it interesting. that the legislators out there are probably predominantly Republican, uh, so I'm, I'm not terribly surprised at that, but I think that's an interesting uh,
3: observation. You know, it's very interesting because when I covered news in Grand Forks back in 1980-81, we used to have forums um, on Saturday mornings, I think it was at 10 o'clock, were hosted by the Grand Forks chamber and we had Republicans and Democrats there. So there, there seems to be maybe a line that might have been crossed. I, I do not know. I, I have not read the story either. It would be kind of interesting to go take a look at, at at what's happening up there. But these things are supposed to be nonpartisan. If if they're if they're sponsored by a chamber of commerce, if if the chamber's not involved and the Republican Party wants to sponsor or the Democratic Party wants to sponsor a legislative roundtable with just other legislators. No problem, as far as I'm concerned. But if you, if you have other organizations and you're at least trying to make it look nonpartisan, uh, it makes me a little nervous. But, uh, again, I'd, li- I'd like to read more into it. Okay.
0: I've got a, another thing that caught my eye, and that was uh, – this was from uh, Representative Karen Carls, a Republican from Bismarck, who says Monday will be gun day in the North Dakota House. Uh, and uh, she says a, a measure that's expected to come up Monday is her proposal to allow people to possess a gun in public during a declared state of emergency. <laughs> so uh, where did that come from?
3: Oh, that there were an awful lot of gun bills that were introduced. There was that one. We talked about the guns in schools. We talked about the idea that you could have concealed carry in big big events like a concert or or. A political rally or something like that. There are a lot of there were a lot of gun bills that came up on Monday, and uh, what it is is uh, legislators' response to what may be coming from the federal government. The legislators who introduced those bills said, "We want to make sure that North Dakotans have their Second Amendment rights." That's what's driving it, and yeah, I, I'm sure Carl was was being a little bit fun, she was having a little fun with it saying, you know, Monday is gun day because she saw all the bills that were on the calendar. (laughs) And in the House, they're trying to do that. They're trying to kind of group together bills of a certain type of subject. So they're all taken care of in one fell swoop, if you want.
0: Could I ask a question in general about the way legislation gets to uh, to the bill form in North Dakota? Uh, And I don't mean to sound obtuse, but uh, Is there a vetting process? Does a legislator, you know, necessarily have to talk with anybody, or can that legislator just write something up, propose it as a bill, and see what happens to it?
3: The vetting process is the legislative council. Everything has to go through legislative council to make sure it's drafted in the right form, the right bill form. And many legislators will go and look for co-sponsors to talk about ideas but really, they, can't, they, they don't write the legislation themselves. It has to be written th- by the Legislative Council so it's in the correct form.
0: Well, that's interesting because we've, we've had some uh, intriguing bills. Uh, I'm, I'm sure every session does, but this oh, yes. session certainly has. <laughs> Well, Jerry reminded me when we spoke uh, earlier today that this is tournament season, and uh, this is the time when North Dakota turns out all the lights and goes someplace else to watch a game. Uh, Jerry, (laughs) what's happening in Newtown?
1: Well, the Newtown boys didn't fare very well in in the uh, district tournaments. Uh, The uh, partial did uh, come out second, but they, they lost their first game in the regional tournament, so... But um, I think the most different, interesting thing on the uh, boys' side of the tournament is, I believe, three of the top six ranked teams in the state lost. So um, that's going to make for an interesting state tournament, I think.
0: And uh, you're pretty uh, pumped about the Newtown girls, right?
1: Yep, they're ranked second in state. Uh, they went to state last year, and uh, they're only loss is to the number one team, Bishop Ryan, up there in Minot. And so that's uh, going to be a lot of excitement.
0: Mary Jo, this is kind of a cultural phenomenon in North Dakota. That I mean, we have Class A, too, but Class B is what seems to capture uh, a lot of the excitement.
2: Yes, Class B is, is where it's at in this state.
0: <laughs> and uh, I suspect, uh, Dave, that uh, there'll be a lot of activity out in your area.
3: I think there will be, and I am not exactly sure uh, where the A and the B tournaments are this year. Do you do, do, do you know? <laughs> I don't actually. I,
2: I, I think the B is the B is in Minot, I believe.
3: The B is in Minot. The B
1: boys yeah. is in Minot, and yeah. the B girls is in Fargo.
0: All right.
2: How about the A?
1: Uh, i 'm not sure
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> point taken <Yes. laughs> okay well we 'll we'll just say that on Thursdays and Fridays, the legislature might be a bit thin, especially in those b in those B areas where some of the legislators are going to go watch the game all and right, find good good for them
0: well let 's uh I hope they have good weather we don 't have march storms for the tournaments, which we occasionally do, but uh, thank you, Dave Thompson, Prairie Public News director. Mary Jo Hotzler, Director of Forum News Service, congratulations again. And Jerry Crum, Editor of the Newtown News and Montreal County Record, for participating in our March Editors' Roundtable. Look forward to talking to you again. Sounds good. Thank you. Dakota Date book is coming up.
2: I'm Jean Cochran, NPR newscaster part of a 24-7 news operation dedicated to keeping you informed of events here in the U.S. and around the world. I've stayed at NPR 30 years because it's the only place I know that tells the stories about our world free from hype and commercial influence.
4: Straightforward news. This is NPR. This is Dakota Datebook for March 1st. The citizens of Washburn reported their desire to procure the North Dakota Agricultural College for their own city on this date in 1916. Community members had held a mass meeting in order to form the Agricultural College Removal Association in the hopes of taking the college from its present location in Fargo. The activities were a direct result of an attack on the school launched by John Allman of Walsh County. Allman, a member of the Constitutional Convention, called on the state's Attorney General to dig up his crowbar, come to bar and pry the college loose from its present site. Allman's insistence was fueled by a small misnomer concerning the land on which the college rested. According to him, the college was granted the land inappropriately from the State Common School Fund under a federal grant. The land should have been acquired by public institution funds. Since the same board administered the public school fund and the public institution fund, the mistake appeared as a minor technical error made by the members of the board. Allman argued that the state pay the common school fund for the value of the property or the agricultural college be removed from its site in Fargo. Several cities jumped at the chance to acquire the school, including the hopeful citizens of Washburn. The city's Agricultural College Removal Association raised over $10,000 in a campaign to relocate the school. Large contributions came from Washburn's businessmen and farmers, and the city hoped to raise an additional $15,000 in the coming weeks. The association also began a massive circulation of initiative petitions across the state. Meanwhile, the citizens of Fargo fought back, calling the accusations mere piffle, Fargoin saw the technical error as a matter that could be readily adjusted and certainly without the necessity of dumping the agricultural college off the lot. The college's president, E.F. Ladd, looked on the whole affair as being without foundation. As time has told, the school was never relocated to Washburn, but with the help of a little corrective legislation, was allowed to remain firmly rooted to its original location. Today's Dakota Date book was written by Jamie Jobs. I'm Meryl Pepcorn.
2: Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota with funding from the North Dakota Humanities Council.
0: Monday on Hear It Now, University of North Dakota students, some of whom have come from very far away, We'll get the chance to know the region better in a Stone Soup bus tour. It'll take place during spring break, so they won't be going to Panama City Beach or Cancun. They'll travel to rural communities around the area. And Lana Rekha will join us uh, Monday. She's the director of UND's Center for Community Engagement to talk about the Stone Soup bus tour. Also, juvenile incarceration is down nationwide and in North Dakota, thanks to new approaches that are considered better for all concerned. Joining us to discuss that situation, Lisa Johnner, Juvenile Justice Program Manager for the North Dakota Association of Counties, Casey Treiner, Staff Officer the Division of Juvenile Services, the North Dakota Department of Corrections, and Tim Townsend, Public Information Officer for the Department of Corrections. And we'll also take you to... uh, pretty crazy birthday party idea and that Ashley Thornburg will join me to tell you about that. In the meantime well enjoy a weekend and uh, have a great evening.